All right, good afternoon and welcome everybody. I'm, uh, I'm especially delighted and happy to have uh, my friend here, uh, Professor uh, Rami Ginat. Um, a few words uh, on uh, Rami just to, to situate where this talk he is and how it fits also in, a, in an Israel Studies Seminar. Um, Professor Ginat is currently heading the uh, Political Studies Department at Bar-Ilan University in Israel. He took his uh, PhD degree from the London School of Economics uh, under the supervision of uh, Eli Kaduri, the late Eli Kaduri. His work pays uh, careful attention to the mutual or the interplay between uh, politics and ideas. Um, he published many books and articles, which all of which I'm not going to uh, to state. I'm going to mention on well, all of his works have uh, focused on uh, the Middle East and the Great Powers. Uh, especially surrounding the Cold War. Yeah. And uh, I would mention only two books uh, of his most, uh, most recent books. Um, one is The Definitive History of the uh, Egyptian Communist Party, which was published uh, about a decade ago already? Or? 2011, 2011. 2011, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, almost a decade ago. And uh, his latest book, uh, published earlier this year with Cambridge, Cambridge University Press, Egypt and the struggle for power in Sudan from World War II to Nasserism. And the title of uh, his talk today is Commun Egyptian Communist Voices of Peace. Thank you. Thank you, Yaakov. Uh, it's a pleasure being here. Um, I, would <clears throat> I would just like to say a few things about this paper that I'm going to talk about. It's originally I worked on my uh, book, History of Egyptian Communism, and uh, which was based on uh, lots of archives in so many countries, including Russia, uh, Egypt, France, Holland, with the International Institute of Social uh, History and the um, United States, England, lots of archival material. And uh, when I was working on the Egyptian Communist Movement and the Palestine question, I actually realized that there's lots of material that I won't be able to use in this book, but I'll have to come back to it at some point. So the Lots of it were drawn from the International Institute of Social History in Amsterdam. There they have the collections of communists, um, Egyptian communist activists, who settled in, uh, in uh, France after they were deported from Egypt in 1951. So there's lots of, and I'll talk about them in a minute, there was lots of material that was there that actually was waiting for somebody to come and read it properly. And um, I managed, after I finished my last book on Egypt and the struggle for power in Sudan, I managed to go back to this, these documents that I actually, these documents that I actually um, was waiting for. And th there's a very, very interesting picture on the efforts by the Egyptian left to advance peace in the Middle East, especially the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the if we go back to the 19, uh, 1947, the partition resolution, we can see that the 
the Egyptian left, or the, the I would say the Egyptian communist movement, and the generally speaking the Arab communist movements were bound work. It wasn't actually something that they really wanted, but it was a line dictated from Moscow to support partition. And this line from Moscow was something that was cha- actually it changed significantly in the early 40s, and I will talk about it in a second. So when we talk about the partition resolution of 1947, we are talking about communist movements that actually swimming against the nationalist currents in their countries and support partition against the will of the people there. And that was quite a crisis at the later stage for the communist movements, particularly those in Egypt, because the leadership of the Egyptian communist movements were Jews. Most of them were Jews. And they were obviously blamed by the others for being a fifth column, etc. They supported partition because they are Jews. And, and, and it was very, very hard to um, uh, persuade the political establishment and others that they were actually acting because this line was drawn by Moscow and they were actually following the international communist general line on the future of Palestine. Now, the, I would, <coughs> the study of generally of the uh, Israeli-Arab uh, dialogue, peace dialogue and uh, contacts in the earlier period from 1947 and even before until the until later, until nowadays, it's quite developed. I mean, there are lots of studies on this issue, and the period that I'm going to talk about is 1947-1958. There were books which were written by people like Avish Lime and uh, Eli Podeh and uh, Muhammad Hassanen Haikal and Mufawadat al Syria, the secret uh, uh, talks between Israel and the, the Arabs, and um, Neil Kaplan and others. So it's quite, it was quite a developed subject, and they focused mainly on the Great Powers initiatives, on the, um, certain individuals' initiatives and others, and um, basically it was future uh, dialogue, future initiatives, and nothing happened. I was actually looking at the Egyptian left, and the Egyptian left, or the Egyptian communist movements, was something that was interesting because they were persistent. If you go back to the uh, 1947, from 1947 on till 1958, the period where I actually finished the, the, um, the paper, the article, uh, you will see that there were, despite lots of crises which were throughout this period, they were persistent in the approach to peace between Israel and Arabs and they tried to advance it, and I will give you examples uh, later on. So the question is, what was the difference between, between them and the others? And this is a very interesting point. Why the communists, why the leftists wanted to advance peace with Israel and why the others didn't? Moreover, why others followed the communist formula at a later stage and actually embraced the... Uh, attitude towards peace with Israel. And I will mention Nasser himself in the Bandung Conference in 1955 when he accepted the United Nations resolutions on Palestine 
which was basically the meaning was that it was a de facto recognition of Israel in its pre-1948 borders. And that was, but nothing happened after that. I mean, it, was, it remained within the framework of words, not deeds. So nothing really uh, happened. But it was an interesting point, and I will refer to it also later on. So why 1947, we understand, it's a partition resolution. Why 1958? 1958 is a very interesting year because in 1958, after years of split and quarrels between within the communist movements in Egypt, the, all the main factions, functions, the main groups, including the one that I refer to in this paper, the, the Democratic Movement for National Liberation, Hadeto, or DMNL, Al Haraka Al Demokratia Al Taharur Al Watani. This was that was the name of that movement. They, there was an amalgamation between the, the three main ones, Taliyat al-Umal and them and al-Raya. It's another communist group. And they uh, formed the United Egyptian Communist Party. However, because the party was uh, uh, established, the conditions of some of the uh, uh, groups was that the Rome group, which I'll refer to in a minute, the Rome group was a group of exiled Jews who settled in France after they were deported from Egypt in 1950. And they established the branch of DMNL, the external branch of DMNL, the Hadeto, they mentioned a minute ago. And this branch was actually active, representing the DMNL in international forums and other activities. One of the main ones was the dialogue, or one of the uh, most important one for discussion is the dialogue between Israelis and Arabs, Egyptians and Arabs. In 1958, they were made to cut off the relations with the Rome group in 19, uh, in, as I said, uh, in January 1958. And also, there was another general development in February 58, the formation of the United Arab Republic the union between Syria and Egypt. And from that stage, they actually forced the uh, Nasser, persecuted communists significantly and harshly in Syria particularly because it was a very strong movement in 1958. And um, it was a real setback for communism, the formation of the United Arab Republic. So they couldn't do anything much, you know, there was no... Rome group that was uh, the one that goes between Israelis and Arabs, and there was also the rise of pan-Arabism in Egypt, and this policy that obviously was completely different to the one to the earlier one, with the, the pre-1956 uh, Suez crisis, that we still witness some kind of dialogue between Israel and the Arabs, even on the uh, among the political elites on both sides. So. That was a real change in 1958. Now, as I said before, the Egyptian left remained persistent in its policy towards peace with Israel. And the, um, particularly that movement that I mentioned, uh, the Democratic Movement for National Liberation. In the 70s, a significant dialogue was going on between Israeli uh, peace activists and Arabs activists in France in the 
flat of the exile leader of Hadetto, Henri Curiel. And this dialogue uh, was quite interesting because, you know, people from the Israeli left, like uh, Mati Pellet and uh, Uri Avneri and others, were coming to um, for these uh, discussions. And uh, bear in mind that in 1977, Sadat arrived in Israel. I'm not saying that there was a direct link between these dialogues, obviously, and the but in 1977, actually, Sadat arrived in Israel, so peace became a reality two years later. Now, <clears throat> let me just, uh, this is just a, a general introduction. I will, uh, I would like to ask a few questions here. First, when we, are, we talk about the Egyptian left, so who was the Egyptian left? What was the Egyptian left? So when we talk about it, it's a very small group. There's always has been quantitatively very small, but its impact upon the political and social developments of Egypt was quite significant. Uh, it wasn't homogeneous. It wasn't a unified group. In fact, it covers different. It's a wide spectrum, from moderate nationalist socialism to radical international communism. And since its early days, the communist movement was uh, characterized by tensions between those who adhered to internationalism and those who wishing to nationalize socialism and communism. So that was generally a, a very, very broad picture of the uh, Egyptian left. The founders of Egyptian, of organized Egyptian communism, were foreigners, basically, who settled in Egypt, particularly after the occupation of Egypt in uh, 1882 by the British. Uh, <clears throat> it attracted foreigners, among them thousands of Jews, who were geographically mobile. They looked for Egypt as a country of opportunity, not particularly materialistically. Following the Bolshe Bolshevik Revolution, <clears throat> the foundation of organized communism were mainly laid by foreigners and the founders of the communist movement was a Jew called Joseph Rosenthal. Joseph Rosenthal is a very, very interesting figure because he established the contacts with the Comintern. He established the contact with the, with the Soviets. I saw all these amazing documents in the Soviet archives on his activities and his relations with the, with the Soviets. But in 1923, he was expelled from the movement that he established. And there's lots of explanation why and who. I, I won't touch it because it's not our subject today. In, in itself, it's a very interesting subject. But Joseph Rosenthal was in his approach to Zionism was very, very negative. Very, his, his approach to Zionism was adverse and was based on the attitude and the approach of Marxism-Leninism, which was obviously, in the beginning, was very, very negative. Uh, <clears throat> what was that approach of the uh, Marxist, what was the Marxist-Leninist approach towards uh, the future of Palestine, towards Zionism generally? Uh, <clears throat> Marx, who defined Jews as an imaginary nation, negated the existence of Jewish identity 
beyond religion and caste. Jews, he argued, were to be blamed for the existence of the Jewish problem because they separated themselves from society by forming an economic class and was hated for usury. usury. The social emancipation of Jews, Marx stated, was the emancipation of society from Judaism. Only the communist revolution would solve the Jewish problem just as it would solve all other problems. Lenin was to consolidate the international communist approach towards Zionism following the Bolshevik revolution, and his attitude, his approach was quite similar, it was quite negative. He regarded Zionism as a representative of the uh, big bourgeoisie, and so therefore he was against it. And a change towards the Zionist project came only in, in the Soviet Union, came in communist Russia, came only in the early 1940s. And why did it come? We're talking about the change that took place in Russia's place in uh, international affairs following the great victory in Stalingrad in 1943. That victory was quite significant because following that victory, they changed their policy generally towards um, what they call the the export of uh, global social revolution, it's not that they gave up on the idea, but it's relegated to secondary place, and they were think, talking about expanding the Soviet Union's uh, zones of influence. They were actually started to think in terms of what we call nowadays Cold War, Cold War politics. How can we expand our territories and the Middle East that was a territory that was just nearby, the southern gate to the Soviet Union, was quite significant. So what we see in 1943, and this again, some of my earlier works, because nobody actually touched it before, uh, what we see in 1943 is following the um, abolition of the Comintern, which Stalin now regarded as the Trotskyite uh, project, uh, following the abolition of the, the Comintern, the... Um, the Soviets started to talk to or was looking to uh, uh, nurture relations with Arab governments and government generally in the region that were anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist. And for that reason, they were well willing to extend support materialistically, diplomatically, etc., in order to advance that goal. Basically, they wanted to neutralize the Middle East, the region, removing the British, the French and others and neutralizing it in the later stage when conditions would allow to put their, their feet inside that region. And this doctrine was quite sophisticated and successful, I must say, until the um, uh, 60s. After that, things changed, particularly after the Six-Day War. But I'm not going to talk about that period. But until then, they managed to... Uh, uh, established very close relations with countries like Syria, Egypt, and that was before the rise of Nasser. I'm talking about a period that started in '43 with under the Waft government that ruled Egypt and the establishment of diplomatic relations in '43. All these kind of things are quite important to understand the change that took in, in Soviet Russia. Now, Soviet Russia, or communist Russia, 
embrace this kind of what we call in international politics uh, uh, realpolitik, not the ideology, but realpolitik. And for that reason, as I said, they were willing to support these movements for national liberations and Zionism, or the Zionist movement was part of it because they were struggling against the British in Palestine. And um, the Soviet policy towards Palestine was changeable. In May 1955, they supported um, the establishment of a binational state, Arab and Jew, one state, a single state in Palestine. In September, October 1947, they changed their attitude and they supported partition based on the United Nations Special Commission on Palestine that came up with its recommendations. And what mattered for them was first to remove the British, then we can put our feet in Palestine, we can from Palestine will be able to advance our strategic goals, etc., etc. I won't touch on, on the whole issue, but the, 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 it was quite a, a well-structured policy. It wasn't just that they decided to support the partition. And they supported the Jews in 1948 with arms, with uh, diplomatic support, and um, by all means, the opening of the gates of Eastern Europe and the flood of lots of Jews came and settled in Palestine, in Israel. So the Soviet policy was quite interesting. On the other hand, the communists had to obey or to to, to, uh, embrace that policy, and for that reason they accepted partition, as I said before, and continue after that trying to advance a peace between Israel and the Arabs. Um... What was the communist explanation to the shift on the Palestine question? Why? Why, What made them change their policy? An activist, somebody I met in Egypt, was quite, uh, I think he died not long time ago, Yusuf al-Gindi, or Gindi as they call it in Egyptian. He was a former member of the large communist Hadeto, and uh, he argued that ever since the mid-1940s, what he called reaction forces intentionally accused the Egyptian left for supporting Zionism in order to defame and smear the left, thus hoping to isolate it from public. These attempts aggravated since the outbreak of the Palestine War of 1948. The fact that the communists objected that war, regarding it as a war of the Arab reaction at the service of imperialism, led the Arab reactionary political elite to blame the communists, and particularly the Jewish leaders, for betraying the nationalist cause and supporting foreign interests. Al-Jindi argues that dialectically, by its way of conduct, the reaction helped the Zionists to fulfill their goal of sabotaging the formation of a Palestinian state. Enrique Uriel, the leader and founder of Hadeto, that movement that mentioned, was perhaps the most persistent supporter and defender of the two-state solution until his death, until he was assassinated in 1978. Once the idea, of course, was endorsed by the Soviet Union, he condemned the 1948 labeling it the imperialist usurper's war against the state of Israel. In his view, it was a criminal war 
caused by imperialism and reaction. Curiel remarked that they initially hesitated whether to support partition, but since the revolutionary movement worldwide supported it, they decided to follow suit. They accepted the partition resolution because it was the only solution proposed and because it was the best. Because of their support, a bomb was thrown at his house in Cairo and another one at Al-Jimaya, the newspaper of the, the Hadeto headquarter. In the first weeks of the war, the public supported the war and they felt isolated and cut off the nationalist mainstream. But this did not last long. Gradually, the public and other political groups realized that the DMNL's viewpoint was correct. The war was concocted by British imperialism, according to In retrospect, Korea looked back on the DMNL's stand on Palestine contentedly, and he said, It did not take long before the utility of our position on both Jews and Arabs became understood by, by many. The implementation of the partition resolution, especially the formation of a democratic Arab state in Palestine, would have promoted liberalism, democracy, and peace in the Middle East. Uh, what was the communist stand over the Arab-Israeli conflict in the post-1948 war? After the establishment of the State of Israel, communists, particularly the Jewish leadership and Jewish activists, were persecuted, and many of them, after they were incarcerated, were deported and settled in different countries, some in France, some in Palestine, and then I interviewed some of them in Italy and uh, probably other countries. <clears throat> the rise of anti-Semitism, which wrongly linked all Jews with Zionism, led Hadetto to positively perceive the immigration of Jews to Israel, which its ruling elite was described as democratic bourgeoisie, remote from the ideal of model of the, the ideal model of popular democracy. These leftists, progressive Jews, could enhance the revolutionary potential and bring no less, listen to this, they could enhance the revolutionary potential and bring closely the Israeli and Egyptian communist movements and subsequently the Israeli and Egyptian peoples. Well, some of them I met in, while well, I was interviewing them, it's quite interesting. Uh, one, one, was, one lived in Haifa and he was, when he got back to, when he arrived in Israel, he was a member of Maki for a while and then gradually he abandoned communism. The other guy that was very, very interesting, his name was Abraham Farhi, he's quite real intellectual, was telling me a lot about the past, why they joined communism and all this stuff. But the most interesting thing is that he actually became very right-wing and joined the Likud party in the 70s, late 70s. So he was a complete, had complete view, opposite view. So uh, there were activists, obviously, some of them remain within the, the left-wing uh, uh, Israeli uh, politics. <coughs> the group that was most important for our debate or our discussion is the, what we call the group that uh, is called the Harakat and Sar al-Salam, the Partisans of Peace Movement, 
that was very active from 1950 to 1958. Uh, I would like to say a few words about the Harakat and Sarah Salam and their context in which it actually became active, the political context in Egypt and in the Middle East. We are talking about, in the early 50s, the rise of neutralism. Neutralism is something to do with the Cold War. Unlike neutrality, neutralism is something, is a doctrine that's actually relevant to the Cold War, and there are different modes of neutralism. I wrote a lot about it in my book on Syria and the Doctrine of Arab Neutralism. Different modes. Positive neutralism, passive neutralism, ideological doctrinary neutralism represented by Nero and others. And this is something that was a real development at that period. And it was developing in India, in Yugoslavia later on, and in the Middle East, in Syria, in Egypt, and other countries. Israel, just imagine, was a neutralist until 1950 uh, in terms of its uh, attitude towards the East-West conflict and gradually following the Korean War changed policy which was actually forced upon her to identify itself with the United States. But still, you still remain neutralist as long as you didn't take part in the Cold War. You didn't join the East or the West by signing a military pact with them. The only time it happened in the Middle East was 1955 with the establishment of the Baghdad Pact where the participation of Turkey and and, uh, Iraq. So generally speaking, at that period, we're talking about the rise of neutralism, very, very active neutralism. In Egypt, there was a government run by the Waf party and a minister, foreign minister called Salah Haddin, and they were very, very anti-Western and nurtured relations with the Soviet Union, and there was a period of real rapprochement between the two countries, including lots of economic and uh, and commercial uh, transactions. And and more importantly, you know, in 1951, October 1951, the the, the, the Egyptian government unilaterally abrogated the 1936 treaty with Britain, which was significant event. Basically, from their point of view, the presence of British forces in in Egypt, in the Canal Zone, is illegal. And that led after that to um, terrorist activities or call it um, anti-British activities, uh, including activists from the Muslim Brothers, communists and others, and it created a real chaos along the canal an instability in a way that led eventually to the downfall of that government and a few months later the revolution of the free officers that put an end to the monarchy in Egypt mm-hmm. and to the era of the waft. So Harakat and Sa'al Salam was an umbrella group that was included at the beginning. Muslim Brothers, representative of the Nationalist Party, Socialist Party, uh, the right, the the, the um, waft left wing, and um, it was active trying to persuade the people that you know we should shouldn't follow military alliances with the West. Uh, it was a branch of the World Peace Movement that was sponsored and founded by the Soviet Union. There was another branch in Syria that was active. 
And the whole idea was that we are actually against peace, against war, against nuclear weapons, etc., etc. And they managed to... Um, the campaign was quite successful because very significant political figures in Egypt signed it, signed the petitions uh, to uh, anti-nuclear wars and anti uh, uh, <clears throat> anti-military pacts with the, uh, with the West, etc. The partisan of peace movement took pains to advance its political fa- uh, uh, platform, and that's including an intensive campaign, campaign urging local participants and intellectuals to add, uh, as I said, the, the signature to the Stockholm appeal for the prohibition of nuclear weapons. That was one of the main things. Uh, <clears throat> Although it was an umbrella organization, members of the MN- uh, DMNL featured prominently in the Harakat and Sar al-Salam in the peace movement, and uh, gradually even members that came from different organizations became communists, converted to communism. One of them was uh, somebody called the uh, uh, Syed Kamel and another one called uh, Yusuf Khilmi. The two actually were quite prominent in that movement. So uh, Syed Kamel, once I interviewed him in Cairo a few years ago, he died, and he told me, I said to him, are you still communist? You know, in, was in I think 2007. And he said, once you're communist, you die communist. And that was his approach. But anyway... These two were quite active, and one of them I will refer to was Yusuf Khilmi, who was, uh, I don't think I have much time to touch on all the dialogues. Let me just say that during the period 1953-1955, the main efforts by these groups were to um, establish contacts with the Israeli-Egyptian left, the Israeli-Egyptian, uh, the Israeli Communist Party, Maki, and MAPAM, the United uh, Labour Party. And uh, there were mutual appreciation and, uh, and uh, words of goodwill, but as I said, I mean, nothing serious happened at that, that time. The change, or what, something that they will referred to as a, a landmark was the Bandung Conference, which took place in 1955. And uh, I will just mention it. Why did the Bandung Conference, perceived by the Partisans of Peace movement as an historical landmark? The Afro-Asian Conference in Bandung encourage members of Harakat and Sar al-Salam of the Peace Party to increase the other two future efforts of advancing peaceful agenda, to move from dialogue with like-minded Egyptian, Israeli uh, leftists or communists to the political elites, also to talk to the political elites and also to talk to the Israeli public. In Bandung, Indonesia, leaders of 29 countries met for seven days to discuss problems of common interest to the countries of Asia and Africa. The conference discussed ways and means by which the people of Asia and Africa could achieve their economic, cultural, and political cooperation. 
The conference succeeded in demonstrating that there was a broad Asian-African consensus on a wide range of subjects, one of which was concerning to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Due to pressure exerted by Nasser, the conference expressed, and I quote, its support of the rights of the Arab people of Palestine and called for the implementation of the United Nations resolutions on Palestine and the achievement of the peaceful settlement of the Palestine question. That is, as I said earlier, Nasser's acceptance of the United Nations partition resolution was a de facto recognition of Israel and its pre-1948 borders. <coughs> but again, this nothing happened after the Banu conference, and that's why I refer in, in a minute to Yusuf al-Khilmi and his activities to advance peace following that conference. Uh, <coughs> Yusuf al-Khilmi served as the Secretary General of the Harakat al-Sa'ul Salam. And uh, <clears throat> they were quite pleased all with Nasser's activities, although they criticized him before the conference and said that he's uh, a reactionary and he's a persecuting communist and peace activist. After the conference, his image enhanced and he was positive image enhanced and he became like a real champion of peace from their point of view. So, Khilmi believed that the time was ripe to advance peaceful solution between Israel and the Arabs. Shortly after that conference, in the World Assembly for Peace, which took place in Helsinki in May 1955, he portrayed the change that took place in Nasser's attitude to peace with Israel. He paid tribute to Nehru, the Indian leader, who played a significant role in the formulation of Nasser's adverse approach to military pacts, regional and inter interblock alliances and nuclear weapons and other issues. Now, emphasized Hilmi, was the time to translate the Bandung's decisions into practice. Hilmi quoted from Nasser's interview to Newsweek, he gave it in uh, 23rd May 1955, there expressed, Nasser expressed belief that the Arab-Israeli relations, and I quote, can be improved if Israel shows its willingness to achieve a just peace. We, Egypt, do not demand that peace be achieved in our conditions, but we insist that Israel should show goodwill and sincerity in accepting the decisions of the United Nations. We have no aggressive intentions towards Israel or any other nations. I would like to say, as a soldier, that I witnessed many of the horrors of war, so that I have come to feel a sincere wish for peace. End of quotation. For Hilmi, that was the first time that an Arab leader stated officially that he had just peace with Israel was his preferred choice. The champions of peace, champions of peace on both Arab and Israeli side should convene a conference that would lay the general principles for a just settlement and peaceful coexistence, he concluded. A few months later, in November, he decided to move things forward, and he decided to send two letters, one to the people of Israel and the other to Nasser, he urging them both to seize the historical opportunity created by the Bandung spirit and to embark on the peace boat. 
I would like to read some few lines from these two letters, which I think are very, very interesting. First, mind you, Hilmi, when he was writing the letter to Nasser, he was in exile. He was in France. I think he was in France at that time. He was not allowed to come back home, but he's still sending him this letter saying <coughs> that he praised him for being the driving force behind the binding resolution on Palestine, yet he asked him to take practical steps to implement these resolutions. And uh, he asked Nasser in his letter, why do you refuse to invite Ben-Gurion to Egypt? Why don't you speak directly to the Israeli people in all languages and explain to them the real problem of making peace, the rights of the Palestinian people? In Khilmi's view, the only possible way to sort out the conflict would be to convene an Arab-Israeli international conference, such as the Geneva Conference that achieved peace between uh, India and China. As a first step, he's telling telling Nasser, you should propose or you should declare publicly your recognition of Israel's right to exist. In his letter to the Israeli people, he asserted that the Israeli people, the Egyptian borders, incidents of 1955 and arms race should stop and the two people should rather direct their efforts and energies to peace. He reminded the Israeli readers of his movement, Harapit and Sal Salam, which was a part of the World Movement for Peace. They were determined to continue with their activity despite government attempts to delegitimize the movement and persecute its activists. Then he said to the Israeli people that the incumbent Egyptian government by Nasser was against war and had no interest to de- desire to attack Israel or desire to attack Israel. To come as Israeli readers, he asserted that the Czech-Egyptian arms deal of September 1955 was not against Israel. The 1948 war was a product of imperialism and the traitorous King Farouk. The Arab world had been going through a process of transformation in its approach to peaceful coexistence with Israel, and this change manifested itself in the Bandung Conference. The Israeli people, he tell them, you should trust Nasser, his motives, as he was the key figure behind the Bandung Resolution in Palestine. Israel and its Arab neighbors should avoid joining military pacts advocated and proposed by the Western imperialist camp to perpetuate the state of conflict in the region and to advance their interests. His letters, sadly, were not given the necessary attention by neither Israeli nor Egyptian political elite. But that was a very interesting stage because it actually was a direct approach to the Israeli people on his behalf and also direct approach to, and it was an Arab initiative. It was, Hilmi wasn't uh, uh, an exiled communist Jew. He was an Arab Jew, uh, he was a, a Muslim and uh, it's, it's quite interesting that you know, he came up with this initiative. Uh, <clears throat> bear in mind, if we just put, try and put things in context, we're talking about the Egyptian arms deals which took place in 1955. The, um, uh, uh, shortly after that, 
talking about the Suez War that took place in October 1956. A, a war that Israel was actually allying itself with the old imperialist forces, Egypt and Britain, and talking about peace after that, it was quite uh, unrealistic immediately after that war. And uh, Israel also, the, the, the alliance with the French and British actually spoiled its relations with the Soviet Union too. Although these relations were not great at the time, but it's also affected them uh, soon after. Uh, <clears throat> but as I said, some of these communists were always optimistic and always believed that we can still do something, we can still advance peace. And this wrong group, and this Henri Curiel, he was a really interesting person. He continued, and before that, just it, it's a very interesting point. Although he was expelled from Egypt, he still remained an Egyptian patriot. He always referred to himself as Egyptian. And uh, when the uh, the war before the war started, when after Nasser nationalized the canal, he supported his move and his, his and his movement, and. Uh, he propagated in Nasser's favor in a variety of international forums. At some point, the group received a secret information from unknown sources of an Anglo-French plot to attack Egypt. The information was forwarded on 2nd September, a few months before the war, a month before, to the Egyptian authorities via the Central Committee of the now United the Egyptian Communist Party. The Egyptian leadership remained indifferent for them. The communists were unreliable source, and alliance with them was out of bounds at the time. However, how much it's true about this information, I don't know. I know that some other sources refer to more information that he gave uh, about the three, the um, the collision between the Anglo-Israeli French plans. The, to, to attack Egypt, and even this information doesn't seem to be accurate because they refer to dates that don't exactly go in line with this. The, the conference that took, the, took place in France just a few days before the attack. So I don't know how much it's true about this information, but even though he wanted to go back to live in Egypt and Nasser refused, even though he provided him with information, he, he, he was forever in exile. Uh, <clears throat> they still continued, I mean, after that, about 10 minutes, I finish. Despite that, after the Swiss War, Tradetto continued to write reports and uh, uh, plans how to advance peace. Two activists, and, and they were Egyptians, they wrote it from Egypt. One is called uh, Muhammad Chatta and the other one is Sharif Khatata, two very famous activists. They wrote detailed reports on the Palestine problem and the Arab-Israeli conflict. The reports recommended to recognize the rights of all peoples for self-determination, including Israel, and it criticized the prevailing belief represented, represented by Arab reactionary circles, what they called that Israel would not be able to withstand the Arab economic blockade and that the spending of a large portion of its budget on military and security affairs would weaken the country and lead to its collapse. Also, these circles categorically ruled out peaceful solution with Israel, 
saying that the latter would seize the opportunity to take over the Middle East, the Middle Eastern markets. Some arguments that still you can hear even nowadays, but uh, the two argue that the current situation was manipulated by imperialism, whose strategy was to exploit the Arab-Israeli conflict in order to advance its interests. Its argument that repeat, repeats itself all the time. Hatata and Shatta asserted that the interests of Israel and its Arab neighbors were to avoid further escalations, which would lead to more war and bloodshed, which could constitute a threat to world peace. I won't go in throughout these reports, so they're quite uh, detailed, and, but they, the, the, the main line is peace is the interest of Israel and the Arabs, and the time is ripe, let's do it. Now, they mentioned here something that the Arab countries, the Arab states, managed to do only after the Six-Day War, is to question who will represent the Palestinians. They say that the Palestinian affair had so far been represented inefficiently and carelessly by Arab governments. And for that reason, from now on, Palestinian affairs should only be handled by their own representatives. All peaceful negotiations with Israel should be held without preconditions. <clears throat> the only way, the only possible way to reach out the Israeli public was to offer them peaceful coexistence with their neighbors. Such would, would persuade them to get rid of the poor imperialist rulers. <clears throat> There's also they're referring to the terminology, not to use adverse terminology against Israel, against Jews, speak peaceful, use, employ peaceful uh, terminology like Israel does, and uh, instead of presenting ourselves as anti-Semitic, anti-fascist, uh, uh, chauvinist, etc., if we employ a peaceful terminology, it will actually help our cause. The passion and desire of the part partisan of peace movement to move the peace train had gradually faded away following the internal developments that they mentioned before within the communist uh, movement. The split, uh, the unification, and the removal, the removal or the expulsion of the uh, Rome group from Chedeto. Uh, of course, this development was to have an adverse effect on the communist peace initiatives. Uh, prior to this, uh, as we see, we've seen, the desire among Egyptian communists, whether the Muslims, Jews, or Christians, to advance peace platform was noticeable, quite clear. They represented the margins of Egyptian politics, yet, as was the case in many other issues, political ideologies represented by minority groups often gradually permea uh, permeated to political elites representing the mainstream who embraced such ideas and implemented them. In the case of Egypt, I will refer to some of them. The agrarian reform of 1952, policy of neutralism in the East-West conflict, and the subsequent the development of close relations with the Soviet bloc, the shift to socialism in the early 1960s, 
Nasser's acceptance, acceptance of the United Nations partition uh, uh, resolution during the Banbury Conference. According to some studies, Nasser's acceptance of the Rogers ceasefire plan in August 1970 was also a result of a shift in his policy towards Israel. He, in fact, preceded his successor in his desire to probe and advance the peace channel. As for the Rome Group and its contribution to the Arab-Israeli conflict, after the expulsions of, from Hadeto, the group continued to be active, supporting movements for national liberation. One of them was the FLN. They were quite active and there was very close relations between Enrico Riel and Ben Bella. By the way, I don't know if you know, the, the Algerian embassy in Cairo, which is an amazing building, it was the house of Coriel's parents, and he gave it as a present to the Algerians after the independence. So it served, it served to serve as their embassy. Uh, <coughs> I actually went to see the place, it's really beautiful. Uh, <coughs> Uh, the Rome group did not abandon its desire to see the Arab-Israeli conflict settled. It pursued covert and clandestine channels or channels of dialogues between Israelis and Arabs throughout the period, especially, as I said, in the 1970s. Curiel remained an ardent advocate of the two-state paradigm until his assassination in Paris in 1978. He was assassinated and nobody knows who did it. There are lots of stories who was behind it. For many years, he acted indefatigably from his exile to advance the peaceful solution to the endless Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Anwar Sadat's peace initiative of November 77 and Menachem Begin's response, positive response to it, were not a direct result of the above initiatives, obviously. However, that's another subject that I'm working on now, a new uh, study. However, the road to the Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty had gone through earlier stations of peace initiatives. Decades, obviously, of futile attempts by partisans of peace on both sides to advance peace, regional peace, uh, uh, continued. But, uh, as I said, at the end of the day, peace came from the political elites, and it was a decision made by two governments, the Israeli government and obviously the Egyptian president uh, said that. I will stop here because there are lots of other things to talk about, but I think my time is running. We're very happy to open it for questions and comments and feel free. Please. Thank you. So I guess my question is about class, and basically what, because in the Iraqi case, for instance, um, both communists and Zionists were uh, basically of lower socioeconomic classes, and the elites were the ones who were uh, more, if not pro-Saddam, then at least uh, indifferent, right? Um, and there was something about you know, being of low socioeconomic class that influenced their political ideologies and made them both Zionists and communists, which was at one point opposite sides of the spectrum. And so I'm wondering if, in the Egyptian case, if that was true, if the members of Harika uh, Watumiya uh, or uh, what was the other, uh, or Harika Ansar Salam, if any of them were, if, if there was any kind of coherent class identity as well, or if they were members of the elite. And when they went to Israel, were they in the Ma'abalot or were they, you know, part mm. of the socialist 
Israeli Ashkenazi elites? Did they join? I mean, where were they in the kind of um, anatomy, I guess, of the... Yeah. Right. It's a good question. And I think that the... When you look at the activists, you have to divide them into groups. I mean, when Curiel was the leader of the communist movement, he really tried to uh, uh, proletarizations of the movement, like bringing into the movement workers and others and educating them. It was really something that was noticeable. But when you look at these activists, Hilmi and others, lawyers, etc., obviously they come up from education, yeah. you know, the educated uh, background, and um, can refer to them as middle-class uh, activists. But the, the, there were also, within these movements, there were also others, like Shatta that I mentioned before, that wrote these reports. He was a worker as before. And he was one of these people that uh, Curiel trained in order to make him a leader at a later stage. Muhammad Chata. Yeah. So he came from the bottom, if you look at it that way. But he became, obviously, a leader. And uh, it was, at the beginning, you could see the, the, the communist movement, you see lots of middle classes in, from quite privileged background, some of them. But also, you know, here and there, there were also activists that were workers and others. So the movement, because it was split and there were so many groups, I mean, each one of them was different. Mm-hmm. The EMNL, the one that, uh, the, the, the former version of Hadeto yeah. was established, was very, very uh, uh, different than Iskra, which is another one, Sharara that was based on middle class and rich and lots of Jews who studied in the French Lycée mm-hmm. and other places and they were playing with the ideas of you know, revolutions, etc. Uh, so the, the MNL was proletarization was part of the policy in that movement and uh, what they called uh, also uh, Tamsir. Tamsir is like turning them into Egyptians. Uh-huh. Because many of them are foreigners, you know, came from many different countries, uh, Europeans, Jews, etc. So the idea was we want to tamsir, Egyptianize the leadership, Egyptianize the movement, including the yeah. yeah so that was that was the idea. Yeah. Can I ask? Uh, I guess it's kind of a follow-up question because I mean the Iraqi uh, case is illuminating and also the Iranian one because yeah. in Iran at the same time. Political activity meant communism. There was either the state's uh, suffocation of political affiliations, and there was the communist resistance. So uh, the history of Iran is such that many of its uh, in, uh, the intellectual forefathers of the revolution, of the Iranian revolution, went through the press of the communist uh, party or communist affiliations because that was the only viable way to... Um, I guess, to object uh, mm-hmm. the monarchy. Uh, can you maybe say a few words about the general political atmosphere in which they uh, uh, flourish or fail to flourish in, uh, in Egypt at the same time? I, I think it's the... Well, I mean, you have to look at... It's quite a long period of communism. That we're talking about a period that starts in 1919. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
goes back to the 60s. Uh, if you look at the monarchical period, it's one thing. If you look at the revolutionary periods, it's another thing. Yes. In the revolutionary period, I would say that the communist activists, and one of them, uh, which I referred to, was Lutfi al-Khuli. Lutfi al-Khuli was the founder of uh, what they called the, a new trend in Egyptian communism. It's called uh, um, nationalist Marxist. Mm-hmm. And they were actually trying to, if you look at that group, the group was composed by very intellectuals, very bright people, lawyers, writers, etc. Very, very sophisticated. And uh, they believed in their cause, people like him particularly, like this Lutfi al they believed in what they do. And... Uh, at some point, he started in Chadeto, mm-hmm. and in 1955 he left, and then he started with this trend of Marxist uh, nationalism. And he uh, became an interesting figure for Nasser, because Nasser thought, at some point I'm going to change my social policy. He was talking about a dual revolution, you know, political and social. When he wanted to implement the social revolution, he needed Marxists, he needed, he needed theoreticians to come and help him with the, to formulate mm-hmm. the, 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 the main lines of the uh, theoretical aspect of that revolution. So he embraced and actually recruited all these activists mm-hmm. led by Lutfi al-Huli to the establishment. And in 1961, before he announced the uh, uh, nationalizations, the laws of nationalizations, and the beginning of the socialist revolution, these people were working in newspapers trying to explain the people, trying to interpret the, what's going to happen and why revolution, why the time is ripe for revolution. And they became activists within the Nasserite uh, regime, serving the Nasserite regime, and uh, as long as NASA went through this process of socialism until 65, 66, they were quite satisfied. There was um, a self-abolition of the Communist Party mm-hmm. in 1964, 65. They all joined the establishment, and they believed that something great is happening. The Soviet Union is NASA's best friend. Yeah. Socialism is happening, you know, yeah. nationalization. We take the... We took the land from the rich, we uh, uh, nationalized the main uh, factories, the main uh, uh, infrastructure, yeah. and now we, can, uh, we are very happy until things change in the lane. Yeah. 1967, the war yeah. was a turning point, the defeat, yeah. the humiliation, and Nasser's minds were completely on how to reoccupy these territories, how to bring them back to Egypt, how to compensate for this humiliation. So he dumped the idea of socialism, of socialist revolution, mm-hmm. gradually. And they were dissatisfied, and then the conflict occurred again between them and the establishment. So I'd say that the, the, the best years of these guys were the 60s. Mm-hmm. 
and then it, things changed. If you go back to the earlier period, I'll give you like the, I mentioned Joseph Rosenthal. Joseph Rosenthal was somebody. Where was he from, by the way? It's, you won't believe it, but he's from Tzfat. Oh, really? <laughs> he comes from a family. Suffer. He yeah. comes from a family that was uh, Haredim, what yes. you call Haredim, ultra-Orthodox. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's, he moved from here to there. He was in Beirut at some point. Yeah. There he actually started his uh, Marxist education. Yeah. He was not, not so he was a Palestinian Jew? He was a Palestinian oh. Jew. He went yeah. to Egypt in, yeah. nine, in uh, 1879, uh, I think, something like mm-hmm. that. No, after the British occupation, 89. Yeah. And he settled there. He was a jeweler. Yeah. And he subsidized with his money, the communist movement, with money, mm-hmm. giving the guy that went to represent them in... Uh, in right. Moscow, in the first, the second uh, in uh, Comintern, was somebody that he paid his uh, ticket, uh-huh. and that same guy actually expelled him after that. Concocted something that actually, it was quite an interesting. I wrote a lot about it in my book, but this wasn't time. Before, he was leader of the Communist Party, was also involved in the struggle, the anti-British struggle with nationalist figures like um, uh, Mustafa Kamel, who was the, the nationalist leader. He was very, very helpful to Saad Zarlul, the roughest leader that was the 1919 revolution. He was very, very supportive and active and managed to bring lots of workers and falakhin uh, uh, and peasants to take part in these demonstrations and the riots, anti-British riots. So he was also... He had quite, um, uh, if, if we, we go back to it, you could say also that he was nationalist in a way, although he was internationalist, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? He wanted to get rid of the British first, but then after that we link our country to the yes. homeland of communism, but yeah. he believed that these figures like Mustafa Kamel and uh, others and Saad Zalul are the people who can really lead to a, a socialist uh, Turnover, something really uh, significant, and it, it didn't happen. So it was quite, he was a very, very interesting figure. i just say one thing about him. When I finished my book, I, I, was, I, I, never, I didn't know where he died. And I asked somebody in Egypt, one of the activists, and he interviewed, well, oh, he's buried in Alexandria. He, was, he died in 1946. I said, no, really? So for me, it was, if he said it, it was you know, an authority. I gave a talk in Israel, in uh, Tel Aviv University, and then Yaret Saban. Yaret Saban is a, uh, it was in Mapam, and it was a Maki, a left-wing activist, came to me and he said, do you know where he was buried? I said, I heard it is in Alexandria, 1946. He said, no, he's buried in Hulon, in Israel. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and then he came up with this amazing, he came to me with his, interview with Joseph Rosenthal mm-hmm. that Nasser, it's a long story, allowed him to leave Egypt in 1966 or 65 oh. and he came to Paris to uh, meet his son who lived there he didn't like the weather there said it's too cold, grey, I want to go back to the Middle East where I was born yeah. so he went to Israel, settled in uh, Hamelben in Netanya yeah. and in Netanya he actually was so happy, you know, because he met lots of people who came to see him and talking to him. And 
he gave a massive interview to Yediot Achronot about all of his history. That was an amazing interview. And there, really, I got lots of material that I never had and I would have never found. And he, until he died, he believed that the Comintern expelled him from the party. Although he never knew, the communist documents show that they never gave an order to, to never. And they were against it, basically. They didn't like the idea. And they called the others, bring him back. But it never happened for personal quarrels and all these stuff. So his story is quite an amazing one. I went to Hulon just to see in my eyes yeah. that he's there. And I saw his tomb, you know, Joseph Rosenthal, 1966. Where was the interview with Yediot Sorry? Where was the interview with Yediot Achronot? What year was it? Uh, 66, I think, yeah. Well, it's a large I think I think this is the best point to end because we you wanted all to ask end something. up in Holon. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to ask something? Yeah, yeah. Two short yeah, questions. Yeah. I don't know if the answers are short questions. Yeah. <laughs> the first one, um, Sadat interview news me that you quoted. So, of course, all leaders say they want peace and they're ready to... It's, but the devil is in the details of what are the terms and conditions that they're really ready to settle for, right? So how do you understand his statement? Do you, do you understand a sincere thing? He was ready to you know, sign a deal and... and with Nasser? Certain, yeah, sorry, Nasser, not Sadat, of course. Uh, uh, Nasser. Um, so that's one thing. Or was it just a soundbite for Newsweek to say, of course I want peace? And, um, but is there any, any evidence... Behind that, so that's a question It's a good question because um, when I mentioned it in the, the talk in Israel, somebody started to tell me, "No, no, it was Borgiba, the first one who recognized Israel and all this stuff." And, and I said, "No, if you just look at the documents of the Bandung Conference, you realize, you know, what, is, what does it mean accepting the United Nations resolutions?" However, bear in mind that when he did that, that was after the Parasha, the Lavon story. That was in 1954, and um, it was a real setback. It was very hard after that to, I think, to um, uh, Nasser became more radical, I think, after that. Although, when he went to Bandung, it was about a year later, he accepted the United Nations resolutions. You can ask yourself, was it something that he really believed in? Did he, that's what he meant. There's no, I can't answer that. It's impossible to answer that because nothing happened after that. There were dialogues, there were attempts by the Americans, the Alpha Projects and others. I don't know what he wanted really, Nasser. I know that one of my colleagues wrote a book about, the, I don't know if you know, Yoram Eital, and he wrote in his book, he said that basically Nasser accepted the... The, the, what I mentioned, the Rogers plan and all this stuff, because he wanted to advance peace with Israel. He was actually thinking of, mind you, the Rogers plan was American, and he was an ally of the United, of the Soviet Union, but he accepted the Americans as the, the one that can really make peace between Israel and the Arabs. So things might have changed after that. I don't know exactly if he believed in it or not. This is something that... Um, other people I investigated, but I don't think that Nasser wanted peace at that time, in 1955. I don't believe in it. And also, my studies, my previous studies also, I worked in, in Russian archives, and I discovered that the story of the arms deal with the Czechs 
all these narratives that was made by Muhammad Hassan al-Aikal was all false. Nasser himself, and as I showed in the previous book, before looking at the Soviet archive, Nasser himself was talking to the Soviets in 1954, before Israel attacked Gaza, and before the, 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 the um, uh, Czech arms that took place. In July 1954, August 1954, he met the Soviet ambassador to Cairo, Daniel Solod, and he asked him specifically for arms. And this is in the Soviet archives uh, document. document in the, so if you ask for arms at that stage, I mean, you can ask yourself, so what was the reason for that? I don't know. I think that it, for NASA it was important to have modern arms. It was part of establishing his position in the, the army, mind you. It was a military revolution, so he needed to be strong and show that the army is like, we've got the modern equipment, etc. And... Um, Israel was uh, uh, something that I, I, I really can't... What the, uh, yeah, the very, again, short question. You know, the... <laughs> um, the if, 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 just, if, if I understand to get the, the gist of your, your talk, there, there seems to me some type of disjuncture or um, a disconnection between um, individual people who are sincere ideologues and really espouse world socialism or communism, yeah, and, and want to uh, have this uh, brotherhood or unity of the nations, and, and countries which are acting basically on realpolitik, yeah. even if they're having alliances with... Uh, and, and if that's true, it reminds me, I, I think one of the um, most um, um, blatant cases is uh, Stalin, who you know you think would be a good communist, but when he's negotiating between uh, alliances in the 30s between going with Britain and, and going with uh, Germany, um, I don't know if you know Gorodetsky, but his archival research shows that there's absolutely no ideological preference on Stalin's no, part no, no. whatsoever. <laughs> I, I, between who he goes, it really doesn't matter. It's what's the better deal for Russia? I mentioned it in his politics in the Middle East in '43. There was nothing about ideology. Yeah, yeah. It was all about zones of influence, how to increase the, yeah. you know, the, the 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 positions there in the Middle East, how to improve it, and that was how he managed to eventually to uh, break into to get his breakthrough inside the Middle East. And it, it was the way he handled it was amazing. Unlike all these studies that say that the change took place after Stalin's death, I showed that it, nothing like Gorodetsky that we have to go back to the Stalingrad story and what happened after that. And uh, it's amazing, because Stalin was very pragmatic and very uh, his politics was real politics, you know, it's obvious. Um, I was just, to answer the other question, the, the previous questions, you know, I was in Egypt, and uh, before that, I wrote a book it's called Egypt's Incomplete Revolution. And the main figure there is this Lutfi al that I mentioned before. And when I, when he read the book after that, it was quite, quite an interesting dialogue with him because he was anti-Israel, he didn't want to meet me in the beginning, but he read the book. And at some point, you know, he became an activist, he established the new Harakat and Sar al-Salam mm-hmm. in Egypt, the uh, peace movement, 
the, which was active after the Oslo Accord. And uh, I, he invited me to Cairo because he said, I read your book and you understood my writings until today, you know, describe everything better than I did. I want to do something, a project with you. And I said, what kind of project do you want to do? And when I got into Cairo, I was quite, I was flattered by his invitation. So I went to Cairo and we had the dialogue. It went on for several good days. And he said, look, I think that Mohammed Hassanen Eichel is a big liar. And his book about the Israeli-Egyptian peace talks is rubbish. And I want to do something based on archival materials to disprove what he said. It basically, he said, I want to work on the Israeli-Egyptian uh, dialogue under NASA. He said, can you get an access to the Egyptian archives? He said, let me do it. I will try and speak to Amar Musa who was then the foreign minister, and he said he was a good friend of mine, he would try and help. And we started this project. I was supposed to look at the Israeli, American, etc., and uh, uh, British, and he was supposed to get somebody. Obviously, he's not going to work in the archives. He was going to hire somebody to do the job. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him in January 99. I still remember that conversation. He said, oh, there are good news. We're going to, things might happen, you know, things are going in the right direction. Great, and said, I'm looking for somebody to. And in February 99, he died. He had a heart attack. So the whole project obviously collapsed. But this could have been a great project if he could have given us the Egyptian side uh, aspect of the whole thing and we could see the Israel. It could have been a great subject. That was it. What a missed opportunity. Okay, uh, thank you, Armin. Thank you, Professor Binat. Uh, thank you for coming, and thank you. Uh, well, all the best. It was like.